This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, On the Media, The David Pakman Show, The Amazing Atheist, The Tom Hartman Program, Activism from Best of the Left, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And on this Valentine's Day, let's hope that the cable companies at least take us out for a nice dinner before trying to close the deal on net neutrality. Bit of a disaster today. U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit uh, said, yeah, net neutrality, not so much. Now, what is net neutrality? Uh, it is the idea that the carriers that bring you the Internet, such as Verizon, shouldn't be allowed to discriminate against different websites or content providers. Because if they can, well, number one, they can give themselves an enormous advantage. And number two, they could take political action to, for example, if you were doing an article that was critical of Verizon. Mm, well, look at that. Your website's so slow. Mm, that's a shame, right? Now, do these carriers have a legitimate beef? I think they do, actually. So it's not the easiest issue in the world. So, for example, if you're Verizon and you built the pipes that bring the Internet to your house, and all of a sudden Netflix takes up 50% of those pipes and makes a ton of money you know, taking up those pipes, and you can't charge them anymore, than you would Bob in his home, relatively obviously, right? Well, I can see how Verizon would be pissed about that. I think that we should find a solution to that. But getting rid of net neutrality is not the solution. Because that then gives the Verizons of the world, and Verizon is the one that brought this case, tremendous power. So let me read you a description of what they can do here so you get a a context. This is from Reuters. Quote, the eventual outcome of the dispute may determine whether internet providers can restrict some content by, for instance, blocking or slowing down access to particular sites or charging websites that deliver their content faster. So if you're Netflix, that might be a huge issue for you and Verizon might say, hey, you know what, I kind of like your Netflix business. I'll call it Verizon Flicks and make mine super fast and yours so slow that no one can actually watch anything off of Netflix. Sad day, it was nice knowing you, you're out of business. That's a problem. Okay, but like I said, the much bigger problem is, I didn't like what you said about Verizon or any of the politicians that we gave legalized bribes to to do our bidding. Oh, look at that, it's so hard getting on Huffington Post. No, no, you hang on there for 35 minutes and you might get to read an article or two. As an example, you want to give them that kind of power? That's a terrible idea. Now, uh, this uh, circuit court apparently went in that direction. It is not over. Uh, they can, the FCC can appeal their decision on their power to regulate on this issue all the way up to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court is also conservative. Plus, it's not even clear that the FCC is going to do that. FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler at some point uh, said that, that we need a two-sided market, uh, which seemed to signal his openness to charging more uh, to some companies so that the Verizon of the world could, you know, get their way in other ways. Now, look, like I said, it is a real issue, so he might be on the level here, and he says, look, uh, he's a total su- supporter of the open Internet. Is that true? Who knows? You know, the Democrats appoint so many corporatists, it's nearly impossible to keep up. Right, So we'll have to see what, and we'll judge Tom Wheeler by his actions. Should he appeal this to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. Uh, will we win in the Supreme Court? I don't know. All they ever do is 
hand down pro-corporate decisions, right? So every once in a while you get a decision that says, yes, Obamacare can continue. But remember what Obamacare said, we must buy insurance from private corporations. So that wasn't anti-corporate either. Citizens United that said corporations can give unlimited money into the political system. So we're in a little bit of trouble here. If a few companies that have those pipes can control what we watch or read on the internet, that's about as bad as news as you could possibly get. A D.C. District Court dealt what is likely a mortal blow to network neutrality. I know, I know. How many times I got to tell you this matters? Net neutrality is the idea that every Internet user should have the same quality of service, whether it's you or Google or Netflix. The court went against the FCC, which sought to ensure that companies like Comcast and Verizon would not force certain websites to pay for better service or block certain websites because they were competitors. But because back in 2002, the FCC had classified Internet service providers as information services and not common carriers, it lost its case this week. Now ISPs can do whatever they want and charge whatever they want. Netflix is probably going to have to pay more, so you will too. In a minute, we'll consider the implications of that decision with Siva Vadianathan. But first, you may be wondering why you're hearing Peter and the Wolf. It's because this show has been covering the net neutrality battle long before most people cared. Actually, most people still don't, but they should. Anyway, sometimes the news was hard to explain, like back in 2010 when the Internet world compromised with itself. It decided that ISPs would treat all websites the same if they were accessed from home computers, but they wouldn't get the same treatment, at the same price anyway, when accessed on a cell phone. It was a big deal, but complicated, so I tried something new. Here's a clip from that piece. In the symphonic saga, Peter and the Wolf, Sergei Prokofiev assigned themes to Peter, the bird, the duck, the cat, grandfather, and the wolf. But assigning the bad guy theme in our story is tricky. Everybody thinks they're the good guy. So, in the interest of fairness, we're not assigning the wolf's theme. In our rendering, the net neutrality advocate Siva Vadianathan, who teaches media studies at the University of Virginia, is the bird. If we decide that the only level playing field will be that wire coming out of the wall into our personal computer, we might find that we've relegated all the freedom in the world to the 8-track tape deck over the next 20 years. And that could be a terrible mistake. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do, I do. That was uh, that was a fun moment. Yeah. <laughs> and it was back then, after uh, a compromise, so-called, that ISPs would treat all services equally if you were using your computer at home, but they could charge various rates if you were accessing the Internet from your phone. 
And it's really not so much about charging rates to you and me, the users. It's more about charging extortion rates or payola to the providers of the content. That's kind of the information ecosystem we're used to for the past 200 years. We had a brief moment the past 20 years when it seemed like we might actually create a level playing field where someone's expressions and ideas could win the day over a tremendous amount of capital. But in the absence of network neutrality, we're going to be reverting back to that system in which uh, there really are going to be very few avenues for insurgents and incumbents will dominate just about every outlet for expression. I think it's worth noting for anyone who may have missed it that they haven't had network neutrality on their iPhones and on their Androids since 2010. Have they experienced a different kind of service that an ordinary user might notice? Yeah, in the sense that Apple has, in a number of cases, denied access to certain companies providing apps on their phone. And while Apple has not wanted to raise the concerns of consumer advocates and civil libertarians by blocking access through the browser to certain services. The fact that Apple blocked a Google Voice app for a while is a clear indication that the phone is a different game. Anything you download from iTunes is favored by your iPhone as opposed to any content you download otherwise. In fact, downloading a video file into your iPad from any service but iTunes is very difficult and cumbersome. Hmm. Does that have First Amendment implications? Not really. Does it have competition implications? Most definitely. Yes, and that was something that the judges themselves observed, that, for example, a broadband provider like Comcast might limit its subscribers' ability to access the New York Times website if it wanted to spike traffic to its own news website. It might degrade the quality of the connection to a search website like Bing if a competitor like Google paid for prioritized access. Now, in this case, we're just talking about the wire to the wall. But if most right. of us are mobile, and this has been going on anyway... Here, um, I'm going to say something sort of blasphemous. <laughs> Among uh, net neutrality advocates, as you know, I am one. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much it matters in the long run. I really see the last 20 years of what we call the Internet, this sort of joyous, radical, anarchistic information system, as a historical blip, as a short period of time between two much longer periods of time, one yet to come, through which oligarchy rules Oh, that's really cheerful. So what you're basically saying <laughs> is back to unfair business as usual. I look at the real decision makers in our information ecosystem, and I see four big companies today. I see Apple, I see Microsoft, I see Facebook, and I see Google. And I say, what do those companies want? They aren't necessarily in the business of mastering and monitoring and monetizing what comes over your desktop computer or even your mobile phone. They want to run the operating systems of your life. They see a time in the not-too-distant future where so many different articles in our lives will have data flow through them. And they want to be able to monitor and monetize that data flow. They want to be the operating systems of 
our cars, of our refrigerators, of our eyeglasses, of our clothes. It's all about the data flow. Those companies I just mentioned have, to greater or lesser degrees, Google especially, argued for network neutrality when the game was all about that wire coming out of your wall. When the game is no longer played on that field, and there's no reason to think it will be very much longer, then those companies don't have an interest in network neutrality. In fact, they have the opposite interest. They have an interest in controlling the flow to the best of their ability to keep you in-house using their services so that they can monitor all that data. So when I look at the likely outcomes over the next 10 years, especially the next 20 years, I see nothing that looks like what we have traditionally called the Internet. It just seems weird, Siva, hearing you say that the time of competition and equality is over now. Google will just control, literally, our view of the world through our Google glasses. Oh, I can go farther than that. I don't even think we had that much radical freedom back in the day, not so long ago, for a couple of reasons. Early on in our web experience, like around 1999, 2000, we started gathering our attention through Google, and it really spiked around 2003, 2004, to the point where Google governs our web experience largely, uh, not exclusively and certainly not all the way around the world. But for the most part, what Google thinks is important becomes what we think is important. Now, Google never did that with a heavy hand, but it did it with enough subtlety that Google was able to convince us that this was the natural way. The fact is, if we want things that markets don't provide easily, if we care about network neutrality and the beautiful results that we've had from it, all this creativity, this openness, this free speech, if we want all that, we're not wise to settle for traditional cable broadband as the battlefield. I honestly can't tell how you feel about this. <laughs> Are you resigned? I'm not optimistic that the people of the United States of America will rise up for network neutrality in any form. I am not willing to resign, though, because, you know, in a democratic republic, or at least some semblance of one, we have a responsibility to be open and straightforward about what could be and keep fighting for it. Let's just have a, a much more mature and realistic discussion about it rather than fluctuating between utopianism and deep cynicism. We really need to have a comprehensive discussion in this country over the regulatory framework that will guide our use of data over the next few decades, because it's not about the Internet. The Internet is just a word we use to describe a complex set of tools and platforms and this interconnection of networks. It's a word that's actually quite distracting. The thing we should be talking about is the ways in which data affect our lives and who gets to control the data, who gets to monitor, monetize it. And this combines all these big different areas of thought that are subjects of your show. Things like copyright, things like privacy, things like government surveillance, things like freedom of speech and network neutrality all become part of a general framework where we identify the values we're after in a democratic republic and we try to guide companies and limit companies in what they do so that we can benefit from great innovation and at the same time not suffer the consequences of extravagance from these companies. Suffer. It's just enough though to make you feel 
I'm joined today by Dr. Everett Ehrlich. He is a former Undersecretary of Commerce in the Bill Clinton administration, also president of ESC Company. Dr. Ehrlich, it's great to have you back on. You know, we talked a little bit about this decision by three federal judges uh, de commenting about the FCC's authority to regulate Internet service providers and what they can and cannot do. So let's start at the broadest possible place. What was the decision that was made by these three judges? In essence, I think it's this. The 1996 Telecom Act says that the FCC can do stuff to promote broadband Internet, to expand it, make it better, help it along. But there's a line, and it can't cross that line, and that is it can't treat the Internet the way it used to treat the phone system back in the era of the regulated monopoly. And that specifically means that it can't impose what some people call net neutrality on broadband providers. What's the simplest way to understand what that means to the average end user? I've been using what I guess is known as the Netflix example, but maybe there's a clearer way to explain what that actually means. Well, look, under the old phone system, the only trick that the system could do was close a circuit that made a phone call for you. So every phone call traveled the same way, same terms, same conditions, same speed, because the system was a one-trick pony. But now, in the broadband world, the system is much more complex. It can handle very different kinds of signals. And uh, the point that the courts made is that you can't force broadband to imitate the old phone system and make everything move on the same way. So prior to this ruling, if we take Comcast, for example, which owns NBC, Comcast had to legally treat the access, the bandwidth of someone pulling up video on their computer from MSNBC in the exact same way that they treat someone pulling up video from Netflix. However, it's possible now that if Comcast wanted to slow down or reduce the bandwidth, for someone accessing Netflix versus MSNBC, would they legally be able to do that? No. That's still against the antitrust laws. That's still a corrupt practice, and it's been against the law for over a century. <clears throat> this, though, I think is what some people think about. Under this new ruling, Comcast has the right to say to all of the websites, all of the content providers, if you want a premium connection, one that's unbuffered, one that isn't broken up into packets, you want the best connection, this is what it's going to cost you and this is what you get. Just like the second best tier of service will be defined this way and this is what you have to pay. And it then is obligated to take all comers. So it can't make these editorial or discriminatory kinds of decisions. It can't say, oh, I like you, I don't like you, so you're moving up and you're moving down. That's illegal, no matter what the court said today, or rather this week, this last week. What they can do, however, is say that we're going to have the best, the not as good, the little less than that, and offer tiers of service much the same way that Sears offers, you know, Sears good, Sears better, Sears best. That's the meaning of the decision. It doesn't give Comcast or Verizon or AT&T the right to discriminate in a way 
that we already know is against the law. Let's talk about what the term common carrier means. I've been doing a little bit of reading about some critiques of how the FCC has handled this. And a couple of, of uh, articles I read suggest that the issue here is that if the FCC had allocated the term common carrier to Internet service providers, that they would actually have much broader authority to dictate what Internet service providers can and can't do. So let's start with what is, what is a common carrier designation? Look, a common carrier means that for some reason regulation has decided that you have to share your capacity with everybody. Like if you're a pipeline, right, you've got to accept all the natural gas or whatever it is that goes through the pipeline. The old telephone system, back when it was a regulated monopoly, was a common carrier. It means that it had to accept anyone who wanted to hook up to it and so on. And if I recall correctly, it was AT&T who owned a lot of the lines, but they had to allow other carriers to use those lines to transact communication. And, yeah. And they got that in exchange for being a regulated monopoly, right? The government said, you're going to carry all the traffic that other people bring to you, but we guarantee you a rate of return, we guarantee your profit, and we guarantee you a monopoly. The broadband Internet has been built by many different companies at their own risk. So the idea of, of making them common carriers after they've spent hundreds of billions of dollars is a little outlandish. Now, could the argument not be made, though, that they were able to build that big business on the backs of so many shared resources, the government infrastructure, employees educated by public schools, and their trucks drive around on the same public roads that everybody else does that the government funds? Couldn't the argument be made that the Internet is going in the direction of really a utility? Uh, well, I, I don't think any more or less than any other industry. Hmm. The automobile industry uses roads built by the government and workers trained by the public schools. I think that argument is kind of silly. The, the 1996 Act drew a line through telecommunications. It said that the old phone system had this common carrier status, but the Clinton administration was adamant from the beginning that whatever this broadband Internet information superhighway was going to be that it was in some province. And there are people out there after this court ruling who say that the FCC ought to look at the Internet and say, bang, you're now just like the phone system. I declared it. But you know, this is the Frank Zappa test from his famous song, You Are What You Is. A cow don't make ham. And the Internet is not the phone system. And it shouldn't be subject to the same regulations and the same expectations as the phone system. I do take issue, though, with you saying that the idea that private enterprise uh, being built partly on the backs of, of social or, or common goods and services and resources is silly, because this, uh, this can be applied to other industries, and it's actually been a pretty strong uh, uh, argument. In, t in other words, when we look at, for example, the bottled water industry, or when we look at research and development in pharmaceutical companies, and looking at the fact that, in that case, for example, public water is being used. And the, uh, I guess where I take issue with it, Dr. Ehrlich, is here. When private industry tries to say we are completely self-sufficient and exist independent of government benefits at all, and therefore 
we should be able to run our business without regulation. That's where I take issue because, hold on a second, you're able to run your business in the way you do on the backs of so many government-provided resources. Well, look, it's, you know, for example, the Internet started out with DARPA, right, in the right. Defense Department. But, you know, and that's the case. And, uh, for example, uh, the wireless broadband world relies on electromagnetic spectrum, Although, remember, that's being auctioned by the government to the highest bidder, so it's not like they're getting anything. I think that where the broadband Internet is today makes it less dependent on the government than it has at any point in its history, given the incredible innovation that's gone on, and, and really entirely in the private sector. Uh, it's not what uh, DARPAnet was 20 and 30 years ago. And I go a little further. Sooner or later, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that only these companies have the resources to build, extend, and improve the broadband Internet. I think that there's plenty of protection in the system. Well, plenty. Let me be, not get carried away. The system has protections <clears throat> if we have the political will to use them against rapacious behavior, against discrimination, against certain classes of users. Those are there right now. But if we want to have an Internet that is rapidly moving up in world rankings of speed, that's continually expanding, that balances many different competing technologies, wired, wireless, cable, fiber, telco, and the like, then it's going to have to be done by the private sector, and we're going to have to achieve some kind of partnership with them. Yeah, if I don't disagree with that. My concern, though, is when we look at the numbers, South Korea, Canada, the Internet speeds that they have rolled out even over the last month, it's incredible that with the private sector leading the way here in the U.S., we still have such slow and overpriced Internet. It is truly incredible when compared to other countries. I think, you, I think you're exactly wrong. Uh, first, the International Telecommunications Union, uh, you know, the UN body, sees U.S. broadband as being among the world's cheapest. And if you look at South Korea, for example, 65% of Korea lives in Seoul, which means they live in cramped little apartment buildings, and wiring up a local loop in, in Korea really means run a wire up and down an apartment building. Here, it means run a wire through a suburban residential neighborhood. That is the driving difference between Internet in the U.S. and Internet in Korea. In fact, David, if you look at what's happening in Korea, the average uh, speed of Korean Internet hookups is declining while ours is increasing at one of the fastest rates in the... In sure, but what we have to consider, Dr. Ehrlich, we can't ignore the fact that that may be because in the U.S. the average speed is increasing because more people are getting any access at all. So when you average in something instead of averaging in zero, that's going to help the average person's access speed. No, no, so no, I think we're getting a little muddled, though. Well, okay, but look, the uh, in the U.S., uh, 90% of the population has access to four providers of 10 meg or more. Mm. In Korea, speeds are declining because now that they're done wiring up the apartment buildings, they've got to go out into the countryside. Right. Those are expensive and those are bad connections. It's a, it's 
almost an absurd comparison. I think there's been a lot of disinformation put out. Well, maybe the South Korea example, maybe I stand corrected on that. I'd have to look into it more. But certainly if we look at Italy, France, there are countries that have a longer history of development and do certainly at least have cheaper Internet access when we look at dollars per meg of access. My friend David Pakman is in the middle of a fundraising campaign to expand the reach of his show from four to five days a week. The David Pakman Show has never been funded by big corporations, but always directly by our audience. And we're asking for your help to expand our show to five days per week. This will allow us to compete head on with the homogenous corporate media that you and I are very tired of. We need to fund extra staff hours, hire a new part timer upgrade our video editing equipment and pay for more bandwidth and we're asking for your help with only 10 days remaining they have raised nearly 50 percent of their goal for all the details on the fundraiser including the perks you can get for donating click the indiegogo banner at davidpackman.com is net neutrality dead the answer is a decided maybe but with a grim outlook Unless the chairman of the FCC is willing to change the classification of broadband services from informational services to common carrier services, net neutrality might be dead. Isn't it amazing how it all boils down to what language we use to classify something? Broadband services under their current classification cannot be regulated much by the FCC. If it were to be reclassified, it would fall under Title II of the Communications Act, which would allow for telecoms to be more regulated and protect net neutrality. Critics argue that this would kill competition, to which I respond, what competition? Just look at the market you live in. How many cable companies will provide service to your home or apartment? If the number is over two or three, then you're living in a paradise of competition. Most people in America only have one choice, maybe two. Now Netflix has jumped into the fray. Netflix has said it would rally its members to demand the open internet they are paying their ISP to deliver. In other words, Netflix is threatening to set their mob on the FCC and the ISPs. Can we blame them? If net neutrality is dead, the cost of most streaming or online services will increase. It's simple math. If it costs more to deliver streaming TV shows or movies, you'll pay more for it. Hopefully, more companies will follow Netflix's lead and demand a free and open Internet. We need new legislation and a modernized version of the Communications Act. This act should enshrine net neutrality and more competition in the telecom industry, not less. The greatest irony in all of this is that these ISPs say they want less regulation to increase competition and innovation, appealing to libertarians. Smart move. Americans are certainly frustrated with the government, so taking an anti-government, pro-free market stance seems like a winning bet. But what these companies don't tell you is how they regulate who can set up cable franchises and they ensure that very few companies can compete in the telecom industry. They hide behind free market principles when it suits them, but really they've been using regulation to stifle competition for years. 
There's an awful lot of confusion about what net neutrality is, mostly because big ISPs continue to propagate misinformation designed to muddy the waters around the issue, but it's really not a difficult subject to grasp. Net neutrality is simply the principle that Internet service providers should enable access to all content and applications regardless of the source and without favoring or blocking particular products or websites. Without net neutrality, your ISP can decide for you what sites you should visit. They can allocate tons of resources into making sure that sites they like load nice and fast, and they can make other sites take forever to load or block them entirely. A 2006 study by Akame revealed that 75% of people would not return to websites that took longer than four seconds to load. So rescinding net neutrality is basically giving ISPs like Comcast or Cox or Charter, and why do they all begin with C? It's basically giving them the ability to reign supreme over the internet like gods. We choose what you see unless unless you pay us more. That's the plan. The end of net neutrality would result in ISPs essentially doing a cyber shakedown. They want to go to all the big sites that rely on traffic and users and say, hey, pay us more money or your site is history. What choice will most companies have? The ISPs also want to come to their users and say, hey, you want your shitty, non-premium sites to load quickly? Okay, pay us more money. The ISPs want to kill competition, which would in turn kill innovation. The Internet is one of the last places where normal people can really compete and get ahead. I know that better than most. ISPs and media giants are trying to take that away, and they're winning. We're letting them install toll roads on the Internet. What once was ours is slowly becoming theirs, and we're not doing anything about it. These are the same companies who were given hundreds of billions of dollars in your tax money to build fiber networks throughout America. Oops, they never did. According to a report filed with the FCC by Bruce Kushnick, Executive Director, New Networks Institute, we have been bilked to the tune of over $360 billion by telecoms to build fiber optic networks by 2012. They never built them. How did they take our money? Well, Verizon, AT&T, and CenturyLink went to every state and convinced regulators that in order to build these networks, the state would have to change the existing laws to give the companies billions of dollars for new construction, known as alternative regulations. The state legislatures and public utility commissions deregulated the companies, which allowed the companies to charge customers extra pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters on most services. For example, call waiting or call forwarding cost less than a penny to offer, but the company could charge three to five dollars per service extra. The companies were also allowed to take massive write-offs with the claims that these old wires would be replaced with shiny new wires, fiber optic wires. They never did it. They took the money to do it. They got new laws passed to do it. And then they didn't do it. Look, 
These companies have taken our money, failed to build the networks they promised, overcharged us compared to the rest of the world, told us that we don't want high-speed internet that services like Google Fiber deliver, tried to push data caps similar to your cell phone service, colluded with wireless companies to push wireless internet in areas where they have failed to build out their networks. I mean, of course they want you to buy wireless 4G LTE plans. The markup is huge. The bottom line is that telecoms are trying to kill the real spirit of the Internet. The Internet has flourished as a space that encouraged innovation and new ideas. Because online, there have been so few barriers to innovation. If someone likes your app or website, they're free to share it. Now we face a future of someone not being able to create the next big thing because they can't afford to pay a premium for high-speed content delivery systems that may now be under the total control of ruthless companies that have lied, cheated, and stolen from us at every possible turn. What can we do about this? One... We need to encourage and lobby more cities, states, and communities to invest in building their own fiber networks. Many communities and cities are waking up to the fact that we can no longer rely on greedy ISPs to build the networks. Cities from Seattle to Chattanooga are making long-term investments that will keep innovation moving forward. Plus, it would bring in more revenue to many cash-strapped cities, and it would force these ISPs to actually compete instead of staying complacent with their nice monopolies. Two, end all subsidies to telecom companies. They don't need them, and they have never used the money to build the infrastructure that they promised. Number three, End cable company monopolies. We need new legislation which allows more companies to enter the market to challenge established companies. Only when companies compete do consumers win. Four, encourage the FCC to once again impose net neutrality rules on the telecom. If this ruling stands, and I mean, even if it goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would probably rule the same way because basically what the ruling is saying, what the court, what the D.C. District Court said is that what the FCC said back in 2000, let me, let me set this up. In 1996, the Telecommunications Act, which itself I have some serious problems with, but anyhow, Bill Clinton signed this thing into law. And as with so many things, uh, particularly from that era when uh, Republicans were running the House, you know, I think Newt was around in 96. The Telecommunications Act of 96 defined two kinds of things relative to the Internet. There are those groups that deliver the Internet to the people who deliver the Internet to you. In other words, these giant backbone providers and then there are the people who actually deliver the Internet to you, which in most cases is like your local cable company, your telephone company. Well, in fact, it's, uh, there are still a few independent ISPs 
uh, floating around, but most of them uh, run their stuff over uh, your cable or over your telephone, and they do so in states where that's still you know required that they that they have to be able to. But increasingly, those uh, those options have been pushed out, and so now you've got. Basically, Comcast owns most of the internet business in the United States, the largest portion of the internet business in the United States. Not, I'm not, not sure if it's most, but if it's more than half, but it's the, they're the largest. And then AT&T, I think, is number two. And you've got, you've basically got three companies that control well over half. And probably, I've, I haven't had an opportunity to parse the numbers, but my guess would be at least five companies control probably 75 or 80 percent of all the internet traffic in the United States at the consumer point where you get it. And what they want to do is they want to move from a net neutrality model, which is where you get the Internet and you decide what you want to see and you pay one price per month for your usage of the Internet. And that price can go up if you use a lot of the Internet, but it doesn't matter what part of the Internet you use. Okay, So it's sort of like buying water from the water company. You have a basic price for a certain amount for you know the first... First hundred thousand gallons that you, that you or whatever, you know, thousand gallons that you use in a month, you you pay eight bucks a month for, or eighty bucks a month. I have no idea what water costs these days, and and uh, it's on our dock. I have to pump it myself, <laughs> and and then um, you know, if you want to buy more water, you pay extra for it. Okay, so that's how the internet works right now in the United States. The way it works with cable TV is very different. You can watch cable TV all day long, or you can watch it once a month, and you pay the same basic cable fee. If you want to see more stations, if you want to see MSNBC, for example, at least with the provider that we have, it's an extra $5 a month. You've got to go to a different plan that gives you MSNBC and three or four other networks as well. If you want to see HBO, you've got to buy another plan, which includes HBO. If you want Showtime, you've got to get a different plan that includes that, and you pay more for all these things, whether you use them or not. And that's the key to the insane profitability of this kind of a system. It's something called breakage. The concept of breakage is the key to really high-profit systems in business. If you can get people to pay for things that they don't use, then you make a small fortune. And I can tell you back, you know, from the days when when uh, uh, Nigel Peacock and I used to run the and and Sue Nethercutt, uh, we ran the the uh, International Trade Forum on CompuServe. And CompuServe charged seven dollars a month extra for access to that forum because it was a trading venue. I mean, people were in there literally making millions of dollars buying and trading. And people would come in and they'd or offer shiploads of shrimp or, you know, uh, 300 tons of steel. And they were actually doing the deals on the Internet. This is back, this is in the 80s. This is when CompuServe was the Internet. So people paid $7 a month to sign up for it, and they just got, their credit card got dinged every month forever. And this was AOL's business model early on, too. Just ding your credit card forever. And people would go, and they would check it out for a month or two, and then they'd get bored and go away, and they'd forget that they were paying the $7. And at one point toward the end of CompuServe, probably 70 80% of the people 
who were paying that $7 for access to the trade forum never, ever went into it. So, and that was a lot of money for CompuServe. It was presumably hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I don't know the exact amount, but I do know that the usage went down and the billing was continuing. And so that's called breakage. So if these ISPs now can come to you and say, oh, you want access to uh, the dot triple X domains, porn? You want access to uh, these big news sites, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, whatever it may be? Uh, you want access to, uh, you know, here's our basic plan. Our basic plan gives you uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and... Uh, and Seton Motley's site. But the the big plan, you know, and, and like that, you, you understand what I'm saying? They want to turn the Internet into, like, cable TV. And because the FCC ruled back in 2000 that ISPs were content delivery mechanisms, much like the company that brings cable into your home, rather than common carriers like phone companies, See, the phone company can't charge you more based on who you're talking to. They can't say, if I call Shane, they're going to charge me a dollar. But if I call Danielle, they're only going to charge me 50 cents. They can't do that. Because they're what's called a common carrier. So if the FCC were to redefine Internet service providers as common carriers and undo their own 2000 decision, then all this could be fixed. Go over to freepress.net. And you can sign a petition to do that. We'll be back. I'm coming to terms. I'm starting to learn. This ain't all it's cracked up to be. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, freepress.net. For those of us who use the internet to share ideas, stay informed, organize, and plug into movements around the country and the world, the affordability, access, and speed of our connections is vital. And as you've heard in today's show, net neutrality seems to be slipping away. If that somehow wasn't enough, this week Comcast announced plans to buy Time Warner. If approved by the FCC and ignored by the DOJ, this would mean a monopoly the likes of which none of us has ever seen in our lifetimes. According to Reuters media reporter Liana Baker, Comcast would control 19 of the 20 largest U.S. TV markets. As cable internet is the fastest and most widely available, this also means a monopoly on internet connectivity in those markets. 
the top-rated nonprofit group that spearheaded winning campaigns against Verizon and AT&T's efforts to profit from censoring their users' internet freedom, is leading the charge against the Comcast-Time Warner merger. Freepress.net works towards maintaining internet freedom, halting media consolidation, supporting public media, empowering quality journalism, pushing for transparency and accountability in our democracy, and reforming the press from the ground up. They provide tools for everyone from launching your own low-power FM station, effectively lobbying your elected officials, and spreading powerful images to engage the non-political people in your networks. In their petition to stop the merger, they explain, quote, No one woke up this morning wishing their cable company was bigger and had more control over what they watch and how they get online. But that's the reality we'll face unless the Justice Department and the Federal Communications Commission do their jobs and block this merger. The link to their petition and their other important campaigns and organizing tools can be found under the Take Action tab at freepress.net and, of course, in the segment notes at bestofleft.com. If you still need a reason to sign and pass on this petition, Free Press nails it with their call to action. Quote, Putting this much power in the hands of one company is dangerous. This deal would lead to less consumer choice, less diversity, and much higher cable bills. This is a fight we can win. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage I've talked to entertainment people, and I have a background in that. And I've talked to the high-tech people, and I actually used to do uh, something in high-tech concerning this. And, well, let's not go into that. But the, the, the point is is that I, ha- I have some experience with both of them, and it's interesting how different they see it. Most of the tech people will, will say two things to you about all this net neutrality, and I know many of you are the tech people, so my apologies if I butcher what you would say to me. One thing they'll say is that we're stupid to think that discrimination between content by providers isn't happening now. It's called load balancing, Dan. It's how every ISP runs their services. I mean, you you know, you're always in a situation where you're trying to balance out use, for, you know, from from one person, for example, you know, diminishing the equality of use for everyone else. I mean, Dan, this is stupid because it's going on. It's always going to go on. It has to go on, right? Otherwise, everyone would have to maintain such levels of capability, most of which they never needed, just because they're told they can't discriminate between content. That's one argument you will hear from the tech side. The other is that. You know, a lot of what we're worried about with net neutrality is stuff that just can't happen. This is how the speech usually goes. Dan, you know, the fact that you think that that's possible shows that you don't understand how the Internet works. And unfortunately for you folks who push that idea long enough is that I've been having this discussion with people like you now for 10 years. And so much of what you said never could happen has happened because sometimes you fail to understand where the money is talking. The money is creating the development channels. They're, they're creating the incentives that, that cause us to put more attention into one path of development than another. If you don't understand the entertainment system and you don't understand how much of what they make their money doing is about controlling the delivery system and being the gatekeepers of content, then you don't understand why they would find it useful enough to spend any amount of money to prove you wrong about what's capable of happening on the Internet. 
You know, you can say things like, Dan, the movie industry will never put the genie back in the bottle. The music industry will never put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, you know, they, they can't stop music from being shared, blah, blah, blah. They can sure try. And they can put obscene amounts of money into it. And they can put obscene amounts of money into legislators to vote certain ways, maybe for projects and ideas that are stupid in 900 different ways, but do what the person who gave the money wanted. And my high-tech friends have been continually proven wrong about what's possible because what's possible hasn't been determined yet. There's years of development ahead of us and lots of money that can change what's possible overnight. What I'm doing here was not possible 20 years ago. Now, about why everyone cares about this. Um, folks, this is about something I've talked about extensively outside what I'm doing now. I used to go around and talk to people about the death of the gatekeepers, okay? The gatekeepers are the people in not just media, but also artistic, creative expression, the people that control access to the audience. That's a good way to put it. I always call them gatekeepers, but that's the definition. And these people have always existed. I mean, once you get past, you know, caveman times where you're performing around the campfire for your, your relatives, uh, you have to deal with these gatekeepers, Maybe in ancient Greece, you're a playwright or an aspiring playwright or an aspiring actress. Some guy, and it's probably going to be a guy, might not, probably going to be a guy, um, is going to own that amphitheater and that stage. Now, it may be Athens. It might be a publicly owned thing, but you're still going to have to get through some gatekeeper and some censor who not only can decide whether or not they like your stuff. I have to like your stuff before the audience gets to decide if they like your stuff. But they may like some of your stuff, but not others. You're going to change, change line four of your speech. Don't make fun of uh, this politician in line 10 and change all these things. And if you do, I'll let you on. But if you don't, I won't let you on. That kind of gatekeeper was around in the literature world. You know, do you have a publisher? That's your gatekeeper right there. In the radio world, it's the guy that owns the transmitter. In TV and movies, come on. It's the casting couch and the director. I mean, you want access to uh, to an audience, baby? Let me, show you, let me show you how that goes. I mean, there's an immense amount of power along a wide range of fronts, financially most of all, but a lot of other things you can't imagine. The power to shape or have an inordinate amount of power to shape the culture. Can you put a price on that, folks? Let's understand the motivation here um, for the people in the telecom world that want this to happen. And I should point out that the reason to give yourself a little bit of hope that it won't go down this road is because not all the money's on one side. There are other big players who don't want what the telecoms want and the big Internet providers want. So there's money on both sides, and that provides some cover. So that's one reason to think it's not a slam dunk, that court decision that happened the other day. But you have to understand why it's so important um, in just the financial sense. Like I said, there's a lot of other reasons it's very important. But but if you're a company that provides um, content, I mean, there's a reason that Comcast, which you think of as like a cable provider, bought NBC, which you think of as a television uh, uh, distribution method. It's because it's all converging. Okay, what you want to control is the distribution method, and then you want to give yourself every advantage you can. Do you know why, when you go into a convenience store, certain displays are where they are? Do you ever wonder why this soft drink is there on the shelf and this other soft drink is way tucked back in the corner? 
There's a whole science. You, you can go into an educational field where they teach you the science of product placement and all this. And folks, the product placement um, people give money to the places that do what they want. I mean, if I'm this uh, soda company and I want this convenience store chain to put my stuff way out in front of my competitor, that's going to be cash. It's going to take cash to do that. That's a wonderful source of income for those people who then will put their the product that paid them out in a more high-profile place than the product that didn't. That's what these people want to do. They want to control that again. Advertising is dying. This is the kind of thing that these people see as a way to restore some of the revenue streams. Can you imagine what a big player... I'm not going to use any names here. Let's just, let's just take the biggest player in uh, digital you know, content delivery, and what happens when they decide to create a multiple-tiered pricing plan, okay? And the highest tier gives you the entire Internet. It's everything you have now. We're not taking anything away from you, consumer. You pay our highest price, you get it all. We just thought we would be consumer-friendly and realize that Internet can get expensive. So we have packages that don't include stuff you won't use. If you're not going to use that stuff, why should you have to pay for it, right? This is a consumer-friendly move on our part. So we have a tier below the top tier, which is everything, which is most everything, but not these little corners that no one ever really goes into. It's not that much of a of a step down, uh, but we could charge you less. And you just keep going down these tiers until finally... You get the more basic packages, which are like, look, these are the 20, you can go to the 20 websites uh, that most people spend their time on, and, uh, and, and we can give it to you, maybe almost free, almost free. That's because those 20 websites are giving me money, and then that defrays the cost. But, but So the lowest tier package, you can get your NBC News, you got your CNN, your Amazon, your Drudge. I mean, what more do you need? Most of you don't use anything more than that. And that's how... Someone like, oh, let's just take NBC News now. Maybe they're saying, you know, we really need to catch up in this, uh, in this internet thing. No problem. We'll just pay that big provider, uh, pay them a lot. It's a write-off for us and make sure that we're in the most prominent position. Product placement, right? Now, I've had some high-tech friends and I was discussing this with them and, and their line is, um, I don't mean to speak for all of them, but one guy said, look, what's the problem, Dan? The point of them getting product placement doesn't shoot you off the internet. No, but here's what's great about neutrality. It's as easy for you to get to me as it is to get to NBC right now. Do I compete with them? Hell no. They have millions and millions and millions and millions of people, right? And I don't. But it's as easy to get to me as it is to them. What happens when we live in a world where the people who can provide the data can fleece those big companies for a ton of money by offering them premium delivery to their consumers, something that allows them to stand out from the noise? Yes, podcasts might still be out there, but we're going to be like the cable access channels. You're going to have beautiful high-def color NBC, you know, streaming real quickly, and you're going to have, you know, grainy black and white bad audio, takes forever to download, Dan Carlin channel 137 cable access. I mean, if you think that that's okay, then maybe you think there's no problem with this. But people who tell me that this isn't going to happen don't understand the motivation why all these companies would spend this much money. You know, their, their open excuse is, they say, well, we just don't want the government telling us how to run our Internet services. Yeah, sounds great, but not worth the kind of money you're putting into it. 
We all understand that the gatekeeper is one of the most lucrative roles in the media delivery chain. The Internet has destroyed that. There are a lot of people putting a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of backdoor deals and everything else into trying to restore that as much as they can. And the people who say to me, Dan, they'll never be able to restore it completely, don't exactly fill me with a ton of confidence. If they're 90% successful, we have a very different Internet than what we have today. Hi, Jay. This is Emma from Texas, and this is in response to the sort of abortion debate about what is really the crux of the matter. And I've been following it and, and thinking, and yes, I'm with you in that the logic you worked out in the last section points to bodily autonomy, not personhood, as the crux of the matter. If you believe in bodily autonomy, you will basically be assured to come down on the side of being pro-choice, even if you believe in personhood at the point of conception. Whereas the reverse is not true. If you do not believe in bodily autonomy, then you could essentially go either way, and your choice will almost certainly be made by your perspective on the issue of personhood at the point of conception. You can be on either side of the personhood debate and still think still be pro-choice because you believe in bodily autonomy, basically the notion that while others have the right to live, they don't have the right to use your body in order to live, and that extends to the unborn. This is a half-baked thought. I'm sort of on a layover, so I don't have time. But I'd like to introduce another hypothesis about what exactly is at the center of the abortion debate. I think it's a conservative orientation of discipline and punishment versus our detached liberal weighing of rights. When they say, quote, you put the fetus in this position, so you're responsible for getting it out of the position, i.e. giving birth, I think it's it's more like, quote, you had sex and that's immoral and it's so frustrating that you don't realize that and in punishment for you autonomously using your body, we're going to take away this other expression of bodily autonomy so that you'll learn your lesson and serve as an example. We can debate whether when the zygote becomes a fetus, becomes a person, and with what rights automatically, you know, they go to an innocent person, but I really don't think right-wing politics actually cares about that. They deeply care about discipline the discipline a woman shows when she chastely fends people off until she's married. Not discipline as the strategy, but as the objective, which is why our arguments about how much better the world is when women have sexual freedom fall flat on their ears. They care about making the consequences of sex public as awful as possible, though their tool of deterrence in a world where they're not allowed to punish sex directly and thereby enforce that ethos of discipline. I'm not talking about recruited people at stoplights brandishing images of abortions gone wrong. I'm sure many of them are just inspired by the very easily marketable brand of being against killing babies. Personhood, for them, feels like the crux of the matter. But the recruiter, the deep soul of anti-choice conservatives, is focused on bodily autonomy, is worried that the disciplined moral order is fraying, and that letting women eliminate the negative consequences of sex, pulls female sexuality just far back enough into privacy where we can't exert any control at all, which is why the argument for privacy often falls flat too, because that's the opposite of what they want. What I'm saying is judgment of innocence and guilt and punishment 
are the crux of the matter, implemented through the denial of bodily autonomy. And if we could get away from the biological angle, where our side is boring and their side is emotional, and just possibly have it out in the open over what this is all really about, control and moral discipline, that would be an easier argument for us to win. Because it's tougher for them to argue that preventing frivolous sex is really worth all this punishment. I'm not entirely sure that I've added much new to the conversation, but if I have, good, <laughs> and I'm enjoying this intellectual debate. Thanks so much, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I'm calling about the recent discussion about the conservative, Republican, right-wing abortion prohibitions and so forth and how there was discussion of personhood. I think the, the, the problem is, in the discussion, is that some people do think of it as personhood. And there's an interesting book called uh, Conservatives Without Conscience by John Dean, John W. Dean, that uh, introduces some research about authoritarian personalities and uh, authoritarian dominator personalities, which gets you down a rabbit hole to help understand that when we say Republican or conservative, they're not all the same thing. So a conservative is somebody who just kind of wants the boat not to be rocked too badly, but you'll notice that a conservative, if something has changed and it didn't destroy the, the, the world, they don't necessarily want to roll that back. Whereas I think most more of the people that we're dealing with with abortion are of the, the more authoritarian and they think that, you know, the, like and some of the other callers have said, uh, you know, pregnancy is a consequence of sex. Don't cheat, right? It's, it's just a matter of you stepped out of line, and that's not allowed. And so it's more of an authoritarian response in that case. But there are just as many people probably who believe in the personhood aspect of it, and there are just as many who think that abortion being hard to get is the way it has been their whole life, and they want to keep it that way. And so it's really important with these issues to not think of the world as two kinds of people, you know, progressive and conservative. Because, like you said, conservative and authoritarian, they end up lining up on a lot of issues. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're the same thing. Just like, uh, you know, they line up with libertarians on other issues, but they're not, you know, they're, they're totally not the same thing. And you could, for libertarians, it's a bit more stark, but, uh, but there's some interesting research that conservatives without conscience leads you to that gives you some insight into some of the different kinds of uh, people that we see on the right wing. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in uh, Fort Wayne. And um, I'm calling to thank you for that clip that you played from Black Agenda Radio, which was absolutely brilliant on um, excuse me, the Trump War episode. I couldn't agree more with just about everything that uh, Bruce Dixon was saying. And I think... Um, before we as progressives start getting too excited about the legalization slash decriminalization of marijuana, we really need to be spending time looking at this from a political perspective, a social policy perspective, and also looking at what the corporate capitalist angle is here because a lot of people are going to still get hurt by this if this isn't done right. So thank you for that clip. And um, hopefully, you know, everybody else listening who heard it um, will give that some uh, serious thought. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Today, I just want to add some more comments from a listener. Uh, this is coming from Javier, who uh, we've heard from before. Uh, but he he falls into the shyness sweet spot, where he, he explains that he is too shy to call in and leave a voicemail. But then evidently he is not too shy to explain that he is too shy to leave voicemail and, uh, and I just love that. So, uh, so this is from Javier. The subject is to legalize drugs, we need to boycott drugs. And this is what he says. Because I'm from Mexico, the war on drugs has always been the number one cause on my radar. But unfortunately, I probably have the least popular message you can have about drugs. The first part is a crowd pleaser. It's that we have to legalize drugs. When you say that, people applaud, and every time you have a discussion about drugs on Facebook, three dozen people only contribute the word legalize and then go on and do something else. Now here comes the super unpopular part. Until drugs are legal, you cannot do drugs again. Seriously, my fellow liberals will be happy to boycott any business for any reason, but have absolutely no curiosity as to what giving money to a drug smuggler funds. Well, I grew up around it, and I'll tell you what it funds. It funds kidnapping, torture, human trafficking, slavery, not exaggerating, and murder. Let's take even the most harmless drug, which is pot. If your neighbor did not grow it, then you helped somebody do something terrible in Mexico or Colombia. I actually deleted what some of our most famous smugglers do from this email, but let's just say that one guy had the nickname The Ear Chopper. And while pot is not a gateway drug for addicts, it sure is one for drug smugglers. The steps are growing and smuggling pot, then kidnapping and performing assassinations, then smuggling cocaine and heroin once you have the funds, infrastructure, and manpower. Google Mexican vigilantes. Actual civilian uprisings have been needed since drug dollars have completely poisoned the Mexican legal system. I know the best of the left loves analogies, so here is one. A liberal who does drugs is like a vegan who eats at McDonald's, assuming all the cows died of natural causes. Now, point number two, the main reason drugs are not legal is because white people have no incentive to legalize them. If you are a white American, you can get drugs with no legal risk to yourself at a cheap price and with good availability. You will not get arrested for possessing drugs unless you are black or Latino, so you literally have no motive for changing the system. If the only person of color you know is your dealer, you probably don't know how drug arrests destroy communities. Yet, it is white people who need to protest since the people who are mostly killed or imprisoned over drugs are too busy with civil rights, protecting voting rights, immigration, and ending discrimination. In other words, unless we create a liberal shame around illegal drug use, drugs will remain illegal. Once people run out of money to travel to places where drugs are legal, they'll start to protest. Now that almost every listener hates me, here's what you can do. You can boycott drugs unless somebody you know and trust produces them. If it is a friend of a friend, assume the worst. You can start actually writing emails, making calls, and organizing so that once drugs are legal, that first puff will be completely guilt-free. And I will say in response to that email that so much of that information was already in my head that, you know, drugs cause all these problems and, you know, increases violence in Mexico. And, you know, if you do drugs, then you're sort of supporting that. But for some reason, I had never kind of made the very last baby step of logic to say, you know, not, not just like, well, don't do drugs then because you don't want to support that, but like, there needs to be an actual boycott, actual like liberal boycott, as he describes it, 
against it, a liberal shame around it based on uh, all, all of the terrible things that happen. And I mean, frankly, it probably didn't occur to me because I don't do drugs and don't have a particular in- interest, but totally agree that the state of the drug economy being what it is, it is totally uh, immoral to take part in it. All the more reason to make it legal. Let me know your thoughts. That number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. You can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music Music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained. Stories and wonder what we're doing